decided to, to focus on jobs. And the very first thing we did was to download an open source software, you know, upload it, put some jobs on it, and then bingo, we saw traffic on it and we felt, okay, let's continue that way. How do I get a con how do I get the conviction that my idea is gonna be that big an idea? Number one is, is there a winner in that space? Has the space been taken? If the answer is no, maybe you have a box checked. How big is the space, right? And how big is this, the space is then a function of what are the trends in, say, other markets, right? Investor trends and investor, um, what I'll say, affinity to that space. Nigeria tends to trend with Indonesia, India, you know, so, and maybe Vietnam, right? Um, so we trail by say five to seven, right? So if you look at those markets and then you see a certain pattern, you can almost guess that it would play out maybe in five years time. And things like this, right, help build your conviction to say, hey, if I do this well, if I hit the numbers because of what has happened in this space, right, there's a very high chance that, you know, we would have that happen, say, um, in Nigeria. And then you have to have it on the back of your mind that, hey, what if I'm wrong? I've told myself, right, that, number one, I would not let someone make a decision for me. Because when it goes wrong, I would probably not be able to blame that person. And if it goes right, I want to be able to tell myself that I made that decision and it went the right way. Welcome to Funds and Founders. This weekly show is tailored for Austin founders navigating the early stages of their entrepreneurial journey. I'm your host and fellow Austinite, Abhinav Sinha. If you're looking for the motivation and the insight needed to build a successful company, you're in the right place. Today, we have Lakon. I've known him for three, four years now. He's multiple time founder, exited a couple companies, currently the founder of Motherboard. And I'll let Lakon do a quick intro and then we'll get into it. Hey, have been a very nice to meet you again. Yeah, quick one. So my name is Lakon um, Olude. I started a company called Jobberman. That was sometime in 2009, exited in 2017 to um, Tiger Global and then uh, did some work for government, you know, in Nigeria. So I'm Nigerian, by the way, uh, got a wife, got two kids. You know, I've met, I've been out in the, in the U.S. And sometime between when I moved to the U.S., I started Motherboard that helps companies provide benefits, you know, to their, you know, to their employees. Yeah, but it's nice to be on this show. Sweet. Well, what I like to highlight on the show is just the journey, everything from how you started and why you keep going. So let's talk about Jobberman for a bit. How did you get started? Was it just you, a team, a co-founder? Yeah, I mean, in uh, in hindsight, they say it's 2020, but Jobberman was essentially a an idea that started while, you know, I was back in college with uh, two of my very good friends. And essentially, you know, we had, there was an industrial strike, you know, an academic strike. If you're very conversant with Nigeria, you would know that, you know, typically the lecturers go on strike every now and then for better pay, better welfare and the likes. So Jobberman was what we decided to do during that break. Unfortunately for us, you know, we um, are not exactly fans of, uh, you know, we don't watch soccer or football, the, the, the football that has to do with Ronaldo and the likes, right? Not the American football. And we were pretty less busy at the time. And we said, hey, what can we do to um, just while, our, you know, while away our time? And we figured, okay, it's either we do something 
in the internet space. You know, I have a background in computer science and so also my, uh, my, my colleagues, but one of them has a background in medicine. So we decided to say, hey, you know, we're going to focus either on jobs, news, right, or music. And at the time, you know, it felt to us like jobs was something that was going to be a lifelong, you know, long lasting problem, you know, and we decided to, to focus on jobs. And the very first thing we did was to download an open source software, you know, upload it, put some jobs on it. And then bingo, we saw traffic on it and we felt, okay, let's continue that way. And then we kind of just ramped up on, on that, you know, 10 months down the line, someone reached out to us from Lagos and said, Hey, I like what you're doing. I'd like to put in some money and you know, we accepted. And when we're done with school, we decided to move to Lagos to continue with us. Somewhere in between then I'd done some internship with Goldman Sachs, but Jobberman was what was most important, you know, uh, you know, for us. And that was how we moved on to Lagos. And then, you know, for that you had- This investor was Chica? Yes, Chica and Wobi, yes. Cool. Um, would you say seeing traction, initially seeing traffic is what pushed you to go all in? Or what, what did that step look like? Why were you guys willing to go all in on Jobberman? Because I'm assuming you didn't have revenue coming in day one. You didn't have, you know, you were not taking big paychecks. A like Goldman Sachs internship probably was a better paycheck than going Absolutely. in Jobberman. Absolutely. So just to give a background, what is Jobberman for our listeners, right? So Jobberman is the largest job website in sub-Saharan Africa, right? Um, so if you think about Indeed in the U.S., you know, or you think about, you know, um, ZipRecruiter, in the US, then you're thinking Jobberman along those lines. Um, so why did we decide to, um, you know, to go ahead, right? Um, yeah, now I can sit down and say, hey, you know, using this framework, using that framework, hey, dude, man, it's all bullshit. Um, we decided to go along because number one, even though we had different things that you know, was pretty much termed successful at the time, Right, my my co-founder Bayemi Awiemi already had you know this pretty fledging you know web design business. Okay. Deji Adewomi was still in med school. I was already even before I interned with Goldman Sachs, I um, had a satellite network you know okay. side business going on. So I was installing satellite networks across the country, satellite dishes rather across the country. But Jobberman felt like um, something that you know you could you know we're seeing you know, immediate impact. That's number one. Number two, it felt like something we could compete in favorably, considering the fact that internet and internet businesses was just at its early stage at the time, right? So we had what I would call the unfair advantage of us being computer science students, being in the game early and seeing a lot of what I would call interest, you know, in other countries, like in India. I remember, you know, Nokri, and um, and Monster in India were two uh, websites that we were very religious on. They probably must have been seeing a lot of traffic from Nigeria. I'm like, hey, you know, people looking for Indian jobs, not knowing that it was probably, you know, a couple of us just trying to understand what was going on in that job board. But traffic was one, but we saw a clear, should I say future, in terms of how the internet industry was going to ship out, yeah. right? And we wanted to be 
entrepreneurs. You know, we already had some sort of entrepreneurial flair, and it was just a you know a combination of that effort and you know that dream that just got us focused on Jobomai. Why did you decide to take the money, the investment? Because a lot of early stage founders are very hesitant to dilute and yes. they want VC money, but they don't want to dilute. They want to own the company. What was the reason for? I mean, in, in simple terms, right? It's like essentially in there to grow. You weren't revenue generating at the point. Even if you were revenue generating, you weren't profitable, right? So it's, and you are cash strapped. Right. I wasn't earning well within um, Jobberman and so also were the other co-founders. And it just made sense for us to kind of get something where we could pump into the business and hire other people into the business. So it just made sense for us, you know, to to get in a an investor to help drive the, the growth. And at the end of the day, like everybody says, you know, 1% of a billion dollars is better than, you know, 100% of a million dollars, for example. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. Okay. Makes sense. And did all three co-founders shut down their side businesses before you, so when you all decided to go in on Jobberman or? That's a very good question, actually. So, <laughs> so we all started, we continued Jobberman with our side businesses, right? Um, I was essentially still, you know, traveling back and forth to Goldman in London um, when Jobberman um, was in the first couple of uh, years, I would say maybe in the first two years. Um, and my my other partner also still had his side business um, going. There was another company called Ugo Ost. You know, it was, was an Austin business that was also going. And I remember our investor sitting us down and saying, hey guys, um, you know, you need to kill those businesses. Right. And because we needed to, to focus and maybe this would, you know, help me also highlight one of the key things in when it comes to entrepreneurship, right. Which is that concentrated focus on, on something. And at the time when he said, you need to shut it down, it felt like it was just, you know, speaking crap, right. But thankfully we said, no, we're not going to shut it down and then decided to kind of get someone else in to run the business, right? So, you know, we, we found someone, you know, she gave us a, some sort of a share um, swap, you know, we shared the, you know, and then handed the business over to to them and then they started running the business and then we focused, you know, squarely on on on, on, on Jobomad. Yeah, so did we have that conversation? Yes, we did. Did we shut it down? No. Thank How do you think your trajectories would have been different? Because... I'm assuming all of you are making money in your side businesses, right? And I feel like early entrepreneurs make a lot of decisions based on where cash flow is coming from and where there is potential to make money. I've seen a lot of early entrepreneurs decide to open up an agency on the side and make money because while I'm working on this idea here, let me make money by you know building a website for someone yeah. here, which is again, concentrated focus. Was money coming in here, a better mental state to be in so you could better focus on building job Man, Because you're probably not taking a salary. You're probably not withdrawing money right now from yeah. job Man. I mean, when you consider this question that you've, you've hacked, right, you also need to put in perspective as, as to what state of your life were you at that point in time. Yeah. At that time, we had just, you know, 
got out of school, you know, we had a couple of years to, to fool around, right? Before, you know, the reality starts to eat and then, you know, parents start to say, hey, I'm not going to fund you, right? That's one. Two was the fact that we had made what I would call significant capital that we could burn on, almost such that if we said, you know what, we want to focus on one thing, we still had enough money you know, to yeah, leave on yeah, yeah, runway yeah. for, you know, for a couple of, I'll say a year or two, right? Now, if you take that and then you bring it to say now that I have two kids, right? I might not be able to make that kind of a decision like I made the other time, right? Because I need to pay school fees and the likes, right? So today when founders do that, right? A couple of things that I would put in perspective would be number one, what is the future play, right? Do you see like, are you so, 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 um, you know, confident that you're on, on the path to something major? That's number one. And then number two, do you have what I would say runway, you know, to be able to take this company to, um, you know, some crazy levels and then raise on the back of that? If you have those, I would say, you know what, just crash your whole focus on that single thing. And but then how works. how do you get that conviction? You know now that Jobberman is the largest job board. Yes. But at that point, did you know it would become the largest job board? You had a conviction that internet business would have been the space to be in. Yes. But did you know that would have been the thing to pick up? Right? Like I'm, I, what I'm trying to ask is, how does someone know this is the industry, this is the idea? This Because I, I know how big a market is. I know how big an idea can be. How how do I get a how do I get the conviction that my idea is going to be that big an idea? Okay, so there are a couple of things, right? Number one is is there a winner in that space? Has the space been taken? Right. If the answer is irrespective no, of country and market, irrespective of country okay. and market, right? The answer is if the answer is no, maybe you have a box checked. How big is the space, right? And how big is this the space? is then a function of what are the trends in say other markets, right? Investor trends and investor, what I'll say affinity to that space. Nigeria tends to trend with Indonesia, India, you know, so, and maybe Vietnam, right? So we trail by say five to seven years, right? So if you look at those markets and then you see a certain pattern, you can almost guess that it would play out maybe in five years time. So this, you know, some, some things like this, right, help build your conviction to say, hey, if I do this well, if I hit the numbers, because of what has happened in this space, right, there's a very high chance that, you know, we would have that happen, say, um, in Nigeria. Can you be absolutely right? No. Right. But they're indicators. They're okay. indicators. They're indicators. And then you have to have it on the back of your mind that, hey, what if I'm wrong? Right. And... Very, very early on in childhood, I've told myself, right, that number one, I would not let someone make a decision for me because when it goes wrong, it would, I would probably not be able to blame that person, right? And if it goes right, I want to be able to tell myself that I made that decision and it went the right way. So yeah, so you just need a little bit of conviction, do a little bit of an analysis. Things can go wrong, but hey, you know, yeah, that would help. So Jobberman was roughly eight-year journey. Yep. From 2009 to 17. At any point in that journey, what was one of the highest points uh, besides the exit? 
what was was there a key moment you faced that was like oh like something that stands out yeah a couple of things actually um one was when we hit a million users okay. i mean now you know people ramp up like pretty quickly so yeah. you know internet penetration is high you know mobile penetration is high and all those things but when we hit a million users was was um was one um second was when we hit product market fit Okay. Uh, Quick sidebar. What? How? How do you define product market fit? So, product market fit is when number one, you have a a sweet spot where, you know, your buyer is willing to pay, and then you know you see um, a lot of ramp up without essentially forcing your users to to sign up. Right. So you've gotten to that point where you now have that multiply effect where, you know, candidates just wanted to use your platform. And then companies were willing to, you know, cough out some money, right? You know, to use your services. And at that point in time, it wasn't so bad, unlike before then, when, you know, we'd say, hey, you know, my name is Lake, I'm calling from Jobberman. Can you post your job? And then the next question is, are you scam, for example? Or, you know, why would you want to take my job and post it on your platform for free? You know, like all those questions were, were pretty much there. Um, I think... Some some other highlights that that kind of came up was when we had a mention from um, Mark Zuckerberg um, saying, "Hey, you know what? You know the Jobberman guys in Nigeria doing is you know something awesome." And and they're like, "Yeah, and, you know." And at the time, you know, Facebook was a couple of billions in users, and you're like, you know, it seems like you know we're on nice the- nice mention. Yep, nice mention, absolutely, pretty cool. Um, I'm guessing with highs there also come lows yeah. in the journey. What are what are one or two lows that stand out? Lows, one of you know, I think one of the lows that you know that's that's that stands or that stood out in my memory um, was twenty fifteen during the you know, the credit crisis. Again, because jobs is just quite it's, it's quite a leading indicator as to how the economy yeah. you know performs. So we do a lot of you know um, relationship with the government. And then we were beginning to see that companies were either reducing their workforce, their workforce or, you know, we're hiring, you know, we're reducing the, the, you know, the quantity of hires or we're posting their roles and the likes. And for us, we felt that we needed to um, make a decision internally. And we decided to, you know, cut the staff size by, I think, about 50% or about between 40 and 50%. I think that was... One decision that made me, you know, like in what I would say in African context, when they say you're now a man, I would say that was one of the things that defined me as a man, you know, like looking into the eyes of half of your workforce and telling them that, dude, you have to go. Not because you're not performing, but because we need to survive. Yeah, that was quite a very, very low moment. Was that your first layoffs? I lay off a lot of time. I was the I was the CEO, right? So I was driving the business, you know, growing into that. But that was your first mass layoff. Mass layoff, absolutely. That was financial driven and not performance. Performance driven, absolutely. And that was the only one. Yeah. You're not the reason. You're a number on a, a spreadsheet, yeah. and you just were below the line, not yeah. above the line, right? If you never come to peace with that, you'll start thinking everything you did over the last however long you were there. Mm-hmm. Maybe I could have done that different. Mm-hmm. But your effort is best spent in figuring out your next steps. Why decide to sell? How did that come onto the table? 
was that something pre-planned? Were you planning for years like, hey, we're prepping to sell? Or was it just, hey, we got an offer, let's figure it out? I remember we sat down, the three of us, and we asked ourselves, like, hey, what are we building here, right? Are we building a company that is going to outlive us? The answer is yes. But are we building a mom and pop shop? Um, or are we building to sell? And one of the things we told ourselves was, yes, we're building to sell, right? But we want to build a brand that would outlive us, right? And that was, you know, part of, you know, the whole strategy. So at the onset, you know, as a founder, you need to ask yourself that question because if you don't, the decisions that you make on a daily basis would determine, you know, what your exit strategy, you know, looks like. So it's always been on the table. You know, thankfully we've had, you know, initial investors, Tiger Global, you know, Seek, you know, being initial investors. So they were clearly part of the, the bucket of, yeah, bucket of investors that we could, you know, offload it, you know, to at, at, the, at the time. Right. And then when it got to 2017, right, we felt we had gotten to that point in time. We, the founders, felt we had gotten to that point in time. We raised, we broached the conversation. Um, of course, there was going to be like a shock if the three of us left in at the same time. So we talked about the, the numbers. The numbers made sense. And then, you know, we had also an agreement that we're going to leave in, in, um, in batches, let me put it that way. So two of us left almost immediately at the same time, sometime around December, actually, just thinking about it, you know, because we know we were recording this on December. And then the last founder left, I think two years after, you know, just to ensure that the shock was not as impactful as, you know, yeah. What was the first thing you did after the exit? Did you take a break? Did you I took a, chill for a bit? Yeah, I did. I took a break, traveled to London, went, you know, uh, maybe for like three or four months, got pretty boring quickly. And because there was nothing to do, I uh, decided to start another company. And this was like an outsourcing, an outsourcing you know, like a you know, um, business process outsourcing company. I got pretty tired of that quickly. And then that coincided with my, you know, my ask to join government. So I got, again, a, a CEO, you know, did some equity release to the CEO and then, you know, handed it over and then moved into government. But yes, um, I'm not, I, I didn't spend so much time just sitting down and enjoying life. Would you say that there was ever a point in this journey where there was some notion of burnout where you're doing too much, there's being pulled in too many directions, or do you just like to keep go, keep going? Yeah, definitely. There's also a time when, you know, even right in the middle while Jobman's running, you know, you always have that burnout. And even outside Jobman, off Jobman, you know, you know, the other um you know, businesses that I tried to to do. Yes, you know, I had those instances of burnout. A couple of things. Um, one, because again, you underestimate the power of having co-founders and maybe three co-founders that that's, you know, and, you know uh, three co-founders. The more three co-founders seem to be like the perfect number to have. Um, when you have to, you know, when you have a deadlock, it's very hard to kind of, 
navigate how to, you know, how to solve for that. But when you have three, you know, you probably would have two, you know, on one side and then maybe you're on the other side or something. So, so that's one. Um, the, the second one is when, while you're running the first business and then you exit it, there's something called the founder's hubris that you might feel like, you know what, anything I lay my hands on, you know, with the, was going to work. Right. So if you're not careful, you begin to lay your hands on like three or four things at the same time. And then you quickly realize that the concentrated focus that you had in the, you know, the first year, the first, on the first gig is one of the most important things that actually drove you to that standpoint and not just, you know, four or five things running for five things at the same time. So yeah, burnout, you know, happened, you know, there were times when, you know, I just shut down for like two weeks, you know, wasn't taking calls, you know, was extremely burnt out. But again, what keeps me going, and I think what keeps a lot of people going is number one, understanding that, hey, I've got a hundred years, right? I can experiment as much as I do, right? Even if I fail, even if I lose all the money, Right. As long as I have my brain and I have my sanity, I can always come back. Right. Once I have that settled in my mind, the rest is history. Has that ideology changed before family, after family, after one kid, after two kids? Or has that sort of been a constant throughout? <laughs> because I feel like I resonate with that. I also feel the same way, but I feel like I, I don't have kids. Right. But if I have a kid, I feel like I would be a little worried to be like, oh, let me crash and burn and pick back up because I have to provide for a kid. But I don't know if that fundamental has changed. Okay. So I mean, I'm going to tell you how I, how I think now. During the lives of um, the, you know, the, the, the Joberman episode, right? It was really, I got married somewhere in between. But while I was unmarried, it was like, hey, if... I crash and burn now, I could immediately get a job anywhere, right? The experience I have, you know, having dealt with sea level, you know, it's just way above my peers. That's one. Number two was I could start something else, right? On the back of the fact of the performance at that point in time, definitely would get someone else to back me. When I got married and had a kid, the first thing I said was, hey, if I fail, I'm just going to be a kid, the second kid to my wife, right? So if she works, you know, fantastic. Now, consider the fact that I was in a country like Nigeria, very, very entrepreneurial country, you know, 200 million people, a lot of energy, but there was something that was missing, right? Nigeria does not have a social safety net. Yes. What that meant was I have to figure out a way to provide and create a safety net for myself. So after my first kid, the very first thing I wanted to move to, right, was to preserve the little wealth that I had. So wealth preservation. So I started working towards wealth preservation, got to the point where I felt that I was good enough, where if everything goes to moot, give or take, even if I die, right. my kids and my family is safe. Yeah. Then moving to the US, one of the Best countries in the world. Arguably. <laughs> Again, there's a systemic safety net of some sort, right? Then you have also preserved your world. And then you have a ton of opportunities 
right? Where you could fail today, start tomorrow, start a career today, start another career tomorrow. You know, you just have options and opportunities over and over again. That also has given me quite a lot of confidence to say, hey, I have my family, you know, kind of sorted for, you know, many years if I can't do anything, whether it's through insurance, whether it's through real cash cap and cash. So that's not a concern. It's not a concern anymore. And with that, you know, I am essentially like the liability, yeah. right? Just, you know, having fun and for the- There's more worry of you burning everything than- Absolutely, you know, for the rest of my 60 years. What, what keeps you going? What keeps you wanting to start a business and keep building something new? Why not just stay at home with your kids and not even job, why not just stay at home with your kids and play with them, work with them? help them grow? The two things, actually. One is, I love to solve problems. Okay. Right. So when I see problems like, hey, let's just give it a shot. Let's, let's try it out. The essence of solving the problem is not as essentially to make money. It's just to like, hey, there's a problem here, right? The convenience of the world around this just doesn't make sense, right? Let us try and fix this problem, right? So that's the first thing. The second one is, I feel I have this calling and I can go back into the story and tell you where I picked that calling from, that if I don't build businesses, some people are going to suffer. So I have this compelling responsibility to come up with ideas and take that risk so that people that essentially cannot take that risk, but can create value, can add value can have something to come to work to every day and potentially be able to feed their family. Are you talking about creating employment? Are you talking about providing value to the customers or both or a little bit of everything? I mean, it's, it's both, right? How do you, you know, if I were to create employment, for example, I need to create, I need to provide value to the customer. The customer has to pay me. And essentially I need to get people to deliver that value to the customer, you know, and then, you know, you have that cycle, right? So, but for me, at the end of the day, right, it is actually creating, it, 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 it almost starts first from trying to solve a problem, but also then trying to look at the hundreds of people that work for me and then say, hey, you know what? As long as we do the right thing, I can become a rest assured that I'm going to almost guarantee that you have a job and your family is happy and you're stable. Okay. Yeah. Makes sense. How do you pick ideas? How do you go into the problem solving and business building? Would I say I'm a guru at that? I would say no. Uh, <laughs> because every time I, you know, tend to um, maybe listen to Because we've talked about a lot of ideas and yes. shot down a lot of ideas. Yes. And I don't know if it's been market size, it's just been viability, logistics. A lot of reasons why we've been like, hey, this doesn't seem feasible, right? Mm. But yes, I mean, so very first thing is, you know, market sizing, you know, is very important. That's one. Two is the fact that uh, all the components to make that idea work are available today, right? And, you know, you have situations where you have this, this, but you just don't have that company that can create this to make yours work, right? So you have to kind of pack that idea. It doesn't make it, 
It doesn't mean that idea is a stupid idea. It just means that maybe it's too early in its in its in its day. And then thirdly is also one of the things I look at is also the you know your own ecosystem. You know what kind of things make you know get you going. You go into ideas that are retailish. You know, do you like ideas that are do you like B two C? You know, things that will get you you know pumped up. You know, and and the likes if. I pick an idea that I do not like, you know, I wouldn't put my all into it. And at the end of the day, it's just going to be flat on the line. Yeah. So there's quite a lot of what I would call um, reasons. If you, if you were to ask me, right, where I think I need to kind of put a little bit more time is to be a little bit more futuristic in my ideas, you know, to say, hey, how, you know, how do I place a bet that in the next five to 10 years, right, this is where the world would be. And then how do I move towards that direction and go wait for the world there? Um, I think I need to do a little bit of that. I I was listening to a podcast the other day and I feel like everyone's thinking about AI ideas right now, but I feel like it's a little too late for that. Like if you were thinking about AI four or five years ago, you're now riding the wave. Absolutely. But now it's probably something, I don't know what it is right now, right? But um, you can't be building core AI stuff anymore. You're now building tools. Yeah. Um, I don't know what it is, but yeah, I, I agree. I agree with you. Um, you know, like playing in the U.S. market, you know, where you have like the best entrepreneurs, um, and you are the, are the, you know, you're ahead of of the pack globally. It's a tougher one, right? It's easier when you are in a developing country, or you know, you are in a country that looks up to the U.S. For example, you know, you can essentially trend and say, hey. If this is happening or this has happened five years and, you know, hasn't gotten to this country, there's a likelihood that it will happen here. But in the U.S., you know, you have to like be, you almost have to play God, for, for lack of a better word. How do you define being an entrepreneur? I think at the end of the day, being an entrepreneur is creating value out of something that has zero value today. So combining things, it could be combining things with, from two industries. It could be two things from the same industry. It could be two. It's almost like hydrogen has its own value. Oxygen has its own value. But the combination of hydrogen and oxygen creates water. Same thing as salt, right? So it's really so much around how do you look at an opportunity? How do you see a problem? How do you take constituent parts? combine it together, create a pricing around it, and create value out, out of it. Whether you do that out of desperation to survive, or whether you do that because you want to go IPO, I think the motives are essentially um, you know, secondary. I think if you can do that, then you have what I would call entrepreneurial tendencies. Like that. Very well phrased. Very well phrased. What made you start Motherboard? Okay. What did you see? What made you start it? And were there any... How do I want to say this? Hesitations before you started it? Or was it very clear when you saw the problem, you're like, oh no, I gotta, I gotta go do this? So Motherboard wasn't... Um... Like I would say an idea that was like very clear. Was there hesitations? Yes, like any other idea that you might ever have. 
there would be an estation, but there would be that strong, I don't know, conviction, whether it's data backs or whether you, know, you just felt you had something in your mind that would drive you, right? And I started Motherboard because I realized, and this is within the African economy, I'm essentially very African focused. Um, Quick two minute explanation yes. on what Motherboard is for people. Okay, so Motherboard basically helps, you know, employers, right, manage their benefits, you know, to employees. So basically today, the, the, the relationship between employer and employee in terms of disseminating the benefits is broken, right? The person that enjoys that broken connection is the merchant, right? So you have um, um, an employer, say, give $1,000 per month for healthcare, for example, to the employee, right? But the employee cannot leverage that because the employee is in certain locations or the employee does not even have, you know, maybe the abilities to be able to access, you know, those, those benefits, right? And the employer still gets to pay, right? So there's a lot of money that kind of goes down the drain in that relationship, right? And because of my background from jobs, you know, having been pro-employee, you know, in that sense, you know, motherboard felt like a solution where I could say, you know what, I could fine tune that relationship a lot better, yeah. right? Where companies could actually have what I would call a floating, should I say, um, budget for their employees and employees can tap into that budget and companies still tend to keep their money and employees that don't use the money you know, I mean, have policies that are defined by the company, whether you keep it or the money returns back to the company, you know, and we've essentially done that across different types of benefit from healthcare to nice. food to energy across Nigeria. Nice. So how did you enter the space and how so, did you go about building this company? Yeah. So, you know, the, again, just spending some time and, you know, just talking again about, you know, concentrated effort, you know, you get to your, to a point in time when you begin to ask yourself, like the, your being and your accumulation of knowledge over time, what's your space? And quickly, you know, it was very clear to me that my space was within, you know, jobs, people, labor, benefits, you know, and, 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 you know, that, that world. So that's why it's, you know, have an outsourcing company. Solo founder, co-founder. No, co-founder, right. And that was my, my space. So it was very easy for me to kind of just concentrate within that space, leverage, you know, what I would call the, the relationships and, you know, industry knowledge. And the industry knowledge I've had, you know, to, to start up motherboard. Yeah. Yeah. And just for context, right. I want people listening to get an idea of, Hey, if they're early in their journey, how should they better make decisions? How should they better decide? Hey, should I go with idea A or B or C, right? Just for how, how do I decide what to go and what to do? Okay. Say you have idea A, B, C, you know, like maybe five ideas. The first thing that you probably want to ask yourself, most especially if you have some experience, is what is, in what industry do you have, you know, like a strong knowledge? And hold on on that. And let me tie that back to a single, st 
you know, phrase called unfair advantage. Now, where do you have an unfair advantage? And in having an unfair advantage, you know, you, it's a combination of which industry do you have like immense unlimited knowledge about? Yeah. What skill do you have? You know, by the time you combine it with that industry knowledge sets you apart, you know, in that industry. Do you have something that can make you the number one or the number two in that industry? And what is the size of that industry also? Again, size is also very, very relative to the market size, right? So if you talk about Nigeria, for example, that is a $400 billion GDP-sized market and compare it with Houston, for example, that is like a 450 billion, right? So Houston is just tiny, well, small, you know, and it's almost relative to the same size as a country, right? So you need to look at that market and say, hey, this is where I want to cover, right? What is the size of that market there? And when you can understand that, then you can understand that number one, your unfair advantage would play in that same market, right? So what is the total addressable market and what is the market that you can win to become, you know, number one? If you cannot clearly show that, then you'll probably be a mid-sized business within that space. And it then depends on what you also want as an entrepreneur. Do you want to be number one? Do you want to be number two? number one or number two, or do you want to be a mid-sized business, player, yeah. a player, you know, in that space? Makes sense. What's one problem you're f- trying to tackle with motherboard right now? Or well, whatever is most top of mind for you? I think one of the biggest problems I'm trying to tackle is how to remove the friction of payment for users that do not have a bank account. Okay. So motherboard delivers benefits. Benefits to end users. To end users. Just about 10% of the workforce, right, in Nigeria. Cash heavy. You know, so yeah, it's 90% cash heavy, 10% have a bank account. So a lot of things, you know, happens through cash. And with cash means that you can track, with cash means that there's a lot of, you know, loose ends and the likes, right? And motherboard runs on what I would call almost like auto in, in Mexico, runs on a voucher infrastructure. And for me is how can I make that voucher infrastructure the means of payment for people that do not have a bank account, do not have a bank account close, I'm sorry, a bank close to them and still want to be able to get their benefits wherever they are in Africa, right? Wherever they are in the country. That is my biggest headache now. So it's both a distribution problem plus a centralized voucher creation problem. And there's no network you can piggyback off of currently. So, yeah. So, you know, we talked about, you know, like, what are the infrastructures that you have? Yeah, there are a couple of networks, but they're very expensive. And because they are also very early, right, it's so hard to piggyback on them because all the value that you're trying to create is eroded because they are also still very early stage. 
but he's worked in a couple of other countries before. So, hey, you know. Yeah, I've, I've told you about UPI in yes, India. In India. So only if, I feel like that's been a really good innovation that's been government-led, mm-hmm. built by private contractors, TCS, Infosys and stuff, but government-initiated. Mm-hmm. They're almost one-third, one, I don't know, no one quote me on the numbers, but they're like one third the size of Visa, MasterCard, doing trillions in transactions. But government enforced, so now everyone has to use it. And, yeah. Um, but no, I get that problem. Couple last questions. So one thing I like to ask everyone is, what are three books or resources that have helped you a lot that you think would be helpful for anyone listening? in their entrepreneurial journey. A resource could be an article, a blog, a podcast, anything. I think the very first and fun entrepreneur, or any human being to be honest, is to set the foundation of your of your mind. Uh, because a lot of the things you're going to do would operate at the mind level, right? Before you actually express it out. And I think one of the best books that I've listened to, because I've listened to it, is How to Hone Your Mind by Napoleon Neal. Okay. Um, I'll, I'll get the info from you later. Yeah, it's, it's a very, 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 very good book. Essentially, it talks about how do you move from poverty to success, basically. The next thing is trying to understand how you can use people to create success, right? And the book I would recommend is Teams of Teams, um, written by, um, for, forgotten, Tsunami General in the US, and essentially how Navy SEALs work, you know, to, to get there. Um, that Jocko Willett? No. No, I don't think so, yeah. I can always check it out. Um, and then the third one is really understanding how to build a company. Today, we are in this times when, you know, I would say maybe a couple, like two years ago, where everything is just scaled so fast, you know, born in a lot of cash. And now we've gotten into the year 2023, when things have just kind of cooled down and companies are just falling off the sky, you know. Money's not money's available. Not, it's, yeah. not, it's not as available. And it just takes me back to that book, Good to Great, you know, and uh, and uh, what's the what's the other uh, sequel, um, Great by Choice, and essentially just speaks to how you can consistently grow as a business, even if you're growing at twenty percent month on month, just ensure that it's something you grow consistently, and then you can weather the storm um, for as long as you know time. As long as you don't have any other external factor. Those would be the three books that come okay. to mind. And the last thing is, what's your startup stack or tech stack? So what's your, what do you use on a day-to-day to run your live company? An example is Notion, QuickBooks, Evernote, whatever. Um, what's your stack? I'm a Google guy. Google Docs, you know. I'm a Google guy. All my companies, you know, I mean, you know, you have Slack and the likes coming yeah. know, later in the in the day. Yeah. 
but from Jobberman up to date, it's Google all the way. Okay. Right. Uh, so everything Google. Every, as much as possible, Google, maybe outside the cloud. You know, I use AWS, I use Slack. Personally, right, in terms of my, you know, kind of just gauging my life, working on my life, I use Evernote. Okay. I don't use Notion, you know, but so I use Evernote. Google Docs, Google Drive. Google Docs. Nice. Sweet. Um, simple. Keep yeah. it simple, stupid. Keep this. Yeah. Nice. So if you, if you ask me, right, I kind of sit somewhere between Google and Amazon for the best part. Nice. Sweet. Where can people listening find you? What's the best place to I think the best place to find me is on LinkedIn. Um, yes, yeah, it's 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 on LinkedIn. Yes, you can also find me on Twitter, but I would respond. I don't think I've ever seen your Twitter. But... <laughs> Thanks, Takeon, for coming Thanks, on and for for this session. Very, you know, interested. Sweet. Thanks for tuning into Funds and Founders. If you're a local Austin founder, a venture capitalist, or just someone who's building and in the middle of their journey and would like to be featured on an upcoming episode, submit your guest pitch to abhinavsinha.podcast at gmail.com. If you have a founder-specific event you'd like to promote on the podcast, you can also reach out to me. If you want to continue to get support through your founder journey, hit the follow button and I'll see you in the next episode.